Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. Nice to have you with us. This is part two of Climate Change. I'm Peter Jay, and we are continuing last week's discussion, both with John Kerry's commentary and thoughts from our roundtable. With that, we begin. I want to jump in a bit on the, uh, the cost and people talking about the high cost of what we are proposing to do. Uh, let me suggest it and frame it this way. There is an incredibly high cost of doing nothing. And, uh, you know, look at it from the public health uh, spectrum. You know, how much does it cost to treat these diseases and, and, and uh, you know, injuries that people are suffering at the hands of, of climate change? I would argue that it's grossly much higher than the cost of making the changes that we need to make to uh, fight climate change. And I, I welcome anybody who wants to get on a pedestal or talk about this. And that's why I'm so excited about this show, because we need everybody as part of this conversation. Couldn't agree more, Jeff. I also want to add in there's the there's that cost of not doing anything. It's sort of, you know, what's the risk of, of inaction, right? I, I would also just want to emphasize that we've all been talking about this, the level of urgency, right? It, it's not a it's not an issue that we can kick down the can, uh, kick down the line. I mean, as we talked about uh, New Jersey and these deaths, I mean, uh, my family actually lives in New Jersey. My in-laws were flooded, but they were the lucky ones, like you said. They didn't have to live in a basement. And those 24 deaths in New Jersey, that just, it's in Essex County. I grew up around there, right? It's, it's unimaginable. And that's now, right? It's, it's, it's happening right now. I'm sorry to leave on that note, but I know that there's a future for us. And, you know, when we have uh, this sort of individuals and colleagues and Representative Jeff, Roy, Representative Roy, I mean, uh, I think the future can be bright, but we just need to act now. So I have to um, spin out to go back to the hospital. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Returning to the Harvard Symposium, a general question was posed. How can equity be factored into shaping policy with respect to climate change? It can be addressed in every single program we engage, and it is. President Biden has made equitable, just transition a key component of climate climate efforts. And historically, the lack of justice, the lack of equity in our energy policies and programs has been palpable and very, very damaging. You have Cancer Alley in America, for instance, or go to any a major urban community, and you'll find the diesel trucks being detoured through the poorer communities where the air quality is worse, the asthma is higher, the lung consequences, et cetera, are greater because there isn't, hasn't been that equity. People don't think about it, haven't thought about those things historically very much or enough. 
So uh, we are charged by the president with taking into account in any policy decision that we make, what is the impact on a community, regardless of wealth or location or anything. It is key that the climate impacts do not uh, divide America even beyond the way in which our wealth and taxation and other things have divided America. It must be a just process and a just transition. And we're still obviously learning ways in which we can uh, make that happen, but it is a it is a front and center, top level priority of the administration. I'm going to add one other interesting notion. There was a big data exercise recently. I think it was by the Michigan School of Medicine, if I'm correct. What they did in their big data analysis was they actually went through very large swaths of multiple studies on nutrition and actually reduced down to very real numbers what every type of food we eat does to our lifespan. Uh, This was discussed yesterday on WGBH-FM. And two takeaways that were interesting is that a peanut butter sandwich adds 35 minutes to your life. (laughs) A hot dog costs you almost a half an hour. I mean, that was the very, very simplistic consequence of that big data study. Now, why do I bring that up? It would be interesting to have a big data study, a then and now study of global warming then and now, uh, data points that we could accurately extract from whatever big data might have been available 10, 20, 30 years ago when you know Vice President Gore was talking about uh, global warming. And actually analyze the health profiles of people, uh, lifespan, data, et cetera. Now, I know that there are other things that need to be factored out on that. They need to factor out changes in in, uh, medical protocols and the like. So it's tough to neutralize some of the other data. But if there was a way for a carefully crafted survey to be able to extract that information, to know in very real example consequences what global warming is doing. I think that would bring it home for a lot of people. There is something called the global burden of disease that basically says it aggregates, you know, what is killing people and and air pollution is number four. Air pollution kills 4 million people globally every year. And air pollution is not climate change. It's not the same thing, but both climate change and air pollution is caused by the combustion of fossil fuels. So if we get to the root cause of addressing our fossil fuel dependence, we could simultaneously address climate change and the air pollution challenge, which is real, which is real in Beijing. It's real in Delhi. It's real in so many parts of the world. And so I think there is a lot of good data on how air pollution kills, is killing us today. Uh, But all the multiple other ways that climate change impacts, the WHO has tried to you know, address them, whether it's malnutrition or dying from malaria when your town didn't have malaria five years ago, but now the heat has brought it, or dying from you know dengue, or you know, it's deaths is what we often talk about, but it's also the long-term disabilities, whether it's mental health challenges, having to over and over again this summer worry about our elderly who might not have air conditioning and can they get to you know uh, air conditioned space, or worrying about the rain and you know preparing for a hurricane like the onslaught of 
climate emergencies or sort of these extreme weather events, just this summer, you know, we have had so many extreme weather events here in Massachusetts. Um, I don't, I don't think, you know, as a mom of three young kids, I'm always worried. I'm like, what, what do I do? How do I prepare? And that kind of toll is also something that is not, it's hard to measure, but is real. I was also taken by your, as I was listening to your comment about air pollution, uh, I asked folks to hearken back, if you will, to the spring of 2021, late spring of 2021 emerged a number of very telling photographs in major cities and places that are always highly polluted, photographs that you can't take under normal circumstances. And in these images, you see pristine skies. I mean, absolutely crystal clear skies as though they were somehow Photoshopped in place. You know, imagine a, a sparkling Montana sky in Beijing. I mean, that's what they looked like. And so that, for me, sort of visually crystallized the notion of what actually air pollution is, you know, the fog of industry. During John Kerry's discussions at the Harvard Symposium, other questions came up with respect to how we here in America as consumers who buy so many offshore products reconcile climate change with some of the issues in those countries, such as China and human rights. And then there's also the issue of countries like India, where the climate footprint can be very great, but on a per capita basis, it's actually quite slight. Well, that's a very thoughtful question and a very real one for us. Uh, we just had a meeting on this in the White House yesterday, a conversation about uh, Xinjiang province in China, where forced labor is involved, we believe, in the production of solar panels. At a moment, and, and the Chinese have cornered the market, and about 70% of all solar panels manufactured in China, and 95% uh, of all the panels in the world have some component of Chinese wafer or ingot, which is part of the manufacturing process of the polysilicon. So uh, it's a problem. And, um, and this is a moment where we need to be deploying massively <laughs> renewable energy. So, you know, we've got to find the right balance is, is the bottom line. And sometimes there are tough choices that you have to make in order of priority. Priority number one for me right now, I mean, we never stop talking about pushing, advocating for human rights. That's an American DNA. But sometimes the tools we use to try to leverage and enforce and, and encourage uh, may have to be affected by externals. Um, one of those externals right now is it's a human rights issue if people are dying because they've got a lot of pollution that doesn't isn't their creation. It's a human rights issue if people are being killed in their basements because storms now penetrate areas that never did before and, and they die in their sleep or, or you know can't get out in the middle of the flood. Uh, so there are a lot of equities here and the equities have to all be balanced. I leave tomorrow to go to India for another round of discussions uh, where this subject comes up about the intensity of America's per capita use of energy versus theirs. Uh, 1.4 billion people in India and their per capita use of energy is minuscule compared to ours. And yet they're sort of being told they've got to reduce emissions and, and can't use coal and so forth. So it is, it is very front and center this question, in every one of the discussions we have. We're working with Indonesia to get the Indonesians to raise their, their level of ambition to reduce emissions over the next 10 years. 
And of course, one of their counter arguments is, well, look at us, we barely produce energy. Uh, you know, our people are poor and they live in, uh, you know, in a very different condition from yours who have air conditioning and, you know, massive use of electronics in their homes and so forth. So we have to think about that as we go forward. Uh, I believe we can bring people prosperity, bring them uh, higher quality of life, greater energy, and do it in a clean way. We just don't have to repeat the mistakes of the past. We are not locked in to doing the same thing. That's the definition that, that does you harm. That's the definition of, in, of insanity. When you know you're digging a hole, you, you stop digging. So we've got to stop doing the same thing that hurts us. And that means moving much more rapidly to renewable, alternative, sustainable, clean energy, green hydrogen, battery storage, moving to the renewables, creating our own supply chain in the United States again for solar panels. So we're not dependent on just one country. There are a lot of different things being kicked around right now, but I think that will address those kinds of concerns. I'm oftentimes concerned because I guess of my own kind of academic projection, I'm looking at the present trying to convince folks that this is real. And I mean, some folks who are very knowledgeable and intelligent, but uh, well, you know, because it really, it doesn't impact them at the moment. And then I'm sort of projecting into the future. And I've got some friends who think that this is all apocalyptic science fiction, no matter what we do, it's going to happen. So and why not just die? And we're all going to die. And so why don't we just go ahead and just, uh, you know, because ultimately the sun's going to explode and, you know, what's the point again? Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm very concerned at how we get the conversation beyond those of us who are either academics or zealots or enthusiasts who really want to do something because we can see what the impact might be. And, uh, you know, but how do we convince each other and then the world to kind of change? Well, not kind of, but radically change our entire construct. And here's what I mean by that. When I was a graduate student, well, actually an undergraduate student at University of Rochester, I would go to Vermont from time to time to go skiing with a bunch of friends. And we would drive through these basically tunnels of snow on each side of the road. And there were doors on people's roofs because the snow was so deep. You couldn't get out your front door, your side door. You had to go through the door in your roof. And then everyone had snowshoes. And I recall now, just as recently as 10 years ago, taking my daughter skiing on the same back roads of Vermont. And they asked and they're asking me, Daddy, what are those, uh, you know, what are those things up on the top of those roofs? I said, well, those are doors, doors. Why do they have doors up there? Because they had never seen in their lifetime. And my middle daughter is 30 uh, and uh, my youngest daughter is 28. They had never seen snow that deep of all the years that we have been going in Vermont. They'd never seen snow that deep. And all of this is a result of global warming and acid rain. Uh, and even today, as a matter of fact, there's very little discussion about acid rain and acid rain still, even though it's diminished somewhat, it still exists. And you can see that too as well. 
So how do we move into a really new social construct worldwide? And that could be rhetorical. Uh, I could be just sort of spouting it out for our listeners to just go, hmm. But it seems to me that we, we, you know, we're trying to approach this from the same way that we think we've always approached this, which is having conversations. We are trying to get the world's attention and we're trying to stop emissions. But I think it's going to take something more radical than that. It might take a Miami underwater. And the, but they're already building the seawall, too. We do realize that, right? They're building the seawall in order to make Miami similar to New Orleans, which is at the bottom of a bathtub because the water is starting to rise. Well, I can tell you, Venice. yeah. I mean, what we're doing, you know, from a legislative perspective, you know, we passed in March of uh, 2021 a roadmap bill that sets uh, a, a series of goals and benchmarks up until 2050. Uh, Michael, I think you made the comment earlier on about, you know, we have to be thinking of, of future generations. It's not going to impact uh, us. Uh, and I've said it repeatedly. Hey, the bill that we just enacted in the Massachusetts legislature is, is scheduled out until 2050 when I'll be 89 years old. You know, that's a, a bill that's structured to uh, prepare uh, our world and our state for our future generations. And, and those are the types of things that, uh, you know, people need to take heed of and uh, people need to believe in, people need to support. Um, you know, I appreciate the conversation we're having today because it truly puts into perspective the legislative measures that uh, we put into place. And, you know, I know as part of my campaign in 2022, I am going to face criticism for being a proponent of climate change legislation and a roadmap bill. And I fully expect that to be uh, an issue uh, in the campaign. As sad as it is, people will say, you know, that's a crazy bill. We don't need to do things like that. Why are you... Uh, pushing these, uh, these roadmap bills. And, you know, it's frightening, uh, Michael, to think about those people who say, well, it's all going to end. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's a science fiction movie. Just let it happen. No, it does not have to happen. Uh, you know, we increased the climate by 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, in the, over the la course of the last 100 years with our industrialization and our reckless uh, polluting uh, of the, the air. And uh, we can easily turn that around. I, I shouldn't say easily, uh, but I, we can turn that around by controlling our emissions. And, and I'm delighted that Massachusetts is taking the lead in offshore wind in the United States, uh, because that's going to be truly clean, renewable energy. And it's not just, it's not the only source of energy that's out there. Uh, you know, we have a good solar portfolio. Uh, we have geothermal technology that's out there. We have hydro technology that's out there. And if you put all of these uh, folks in, we also have a robust uh, nuclear uh, uh, strategy and uh, research in that area. You put all these together, you've got a pretty good menu of options to supply you with the energy you need to uh, power uh, Massachusetts and the United States, and we can do it cleanly and get our emissions under control 
because that's what we truly need to do. And, uh, you know, when you put it in the context of, of public health and, and property damage and people losing their homes and people dying, uh, I think that wakes people up and, uh, you know, we need to enforce and, uh, you know, support the measures that we're taking. So let's continue these conversations. There was a recent program on NPR regarding carbon reduction. The country of Iceland actually has developed carbon reduction technology. And Senator Kerry was asked, how relevant is this and how effective is this new technology in terms of managing greenhouse gases? It's very realistic. Um, I've actually visited a site in Iceland. I was there a year or so ago. Uh, they have a very interesting process where they capture carbon. They put it into the basalt and they mix it with a liquid. I don't know what the ingredients of the liquid are, but it turns the CO2 into rock and blends in with the, with the basic basalt. I don't know how much of this it can do. It can't fit everywhere, but carbon capture and utilization uh, is, you know, CCUS, as it's known, is a critical technology that everybody is now pursuing one way or the other. Uh, we are going to, even if we, let's say we get to net zero by 2050. Is the job done? No. We still will then have to suck one trillion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere to prevent the ongoing damage from what is already up there. So it's not just a question of prevention here on the planet, on Earth. It's, it's a question of where do we store it? How do we use it? So a lot of thinking is going into the creation of products from the carbon, the capture of the carbon, the utilization of the carbon. But this, uh, this technology that uh, exists in Iceland is promising for certain locations and certain places where we may be able to store underneath the ground. Iceland, by the way, is unique uh, because it's, it's one of the few countries in the world, very few, that is 100% renewable energy dependent. And the reason they can do that is they have enormous hydro and they have enormous geothermal. And they get most of their heat for their homes and energy from their geothermal. That's how they power their homes and heat them. And they also have the electricity from the hydro and so forth. So it's, it's, they've been real pathfinders. Well, I believe that this is one of the great examples of where the part of it is governmental leadership. Some people might think that governmental leadership is an oxymoron because, you know, politicians follow the trend of whatever it is voters will will support. But I don't think that's always the case. And so because this is such a large issue, an existential issue, it requires some big government action. It's just the way it is, while also encouraging every citizen to do what they can, you know, down at the micro scale. Uh, along with that, you know, there are some successful examples, by the way, that I should point out that maybe help crystallize what it means. When I used to build television studios in the 1980s, 90s, uh, recently, we always had to allow for a certain amount of power in the studio for all of the professional lighting. And we are talking about many kilowatts, tens of kilowatts to light up an average studio. Why? Because incandescent lights in that day would generate enough light from only 10% of the power that was applied to the light itself. 90% of that energy 
was nothing more than waste heat. Mm-hmm. Then add to that the waste heat had to be pumped out of the room in real time by very powerful air conditioners that were cranking away, you know, exchanging the air silently and rapidly. So you had energy on top of energy. The most recent studio I built with all LED lamps uses only 10% of that energy and requires no special air conditioning. So it constitutes approximately an 18-fold increase in energy efficiency overall. That's a huge, huge gain. And by the way, didn't cost any more money than buying the original luminaires that were used in the studio decades ago. So technology is definitely capable of doing something. Uh, That said, when we apply energy, whether it's renewable or not, all of that energy produces two things, motion or heat. The more efficient you get, the more motion and less heat you get. So uh, where we can do things like, as Dr. Mike pointed out, with maglevs and other technologies that are far more efficient at moving things without generating heat, that's another huge gain. But we can't rely totally on technology you know, to save us from ourselves. I think another technology that needs to be looked at is how it is that we can redirect the internet and all the major platforms to recognize their responsibility, their existential responsibility at trying to reduce the amount of stove piping and politicalization Mm -hmm. that we experience over some of these issues and get everyone to hear all points of view rather than simply sitting in their silos and thinking that they have all the answers. That's that's a very serious problem. The democratization, the real democratization of information is, is going to be one of the gateways for everybody finally buying into the notion that this is a real issue and understanding the public health consequences of it. You know, I'm, I'm going to throw a question out here for us. Question that coming. May, uh, uh, that may or may not have an answer. Are we willing to sacrifice, and that's, uh, I'm only using that word to sort of spark the conversation. Are we willing to sacrifice industries for the greater good? In other words, we can put some industries out of business and we could have, the result could end up in almost free. Let's take power. We could literally reduce our energy cost as an individual from let's say a hundred dollars a month, just, just picking a number to $2 a month. Now that industry now is going to go out of business because suddenly it's not needed to the scope that it was before. It's similar to what you just said, Pete. Are we willing to do that as a society? Are we willing to say, and, and the question then becomes, are the industries willing to let it happen? Maglev trains could take the airline industry and mothball 90% of their aircraft. I think what has been really important in recent years in the climate movement is that people are embracing the term just transition. Just transition is exactly what you're talking about, uh, Michael. This idea that we are going to be putting some industries um, out of business. Coal. Coal is going out of business. Um, other fossil fuels. And what happens to the workers? You know, they should not have to pay. They're not, they did not benefit. You know, a coal worker has had 
not the greatest life, has not made the most money, how do we make sure that those workers receive some compensation or are able to be uh, retrained into green energy? You know, securing workers' rights and livelihoods in this process is part of the conversation. It cannot be an afterthought. And I know um, that Jeff has probably thought about it, you know, in terms of offshore wind uh, being a huge potential for parts uh, of our, you know, of Massachusetts that, you know, Fall River, places that have not had industry, you know, is an investment in green industry. How do we make sure that we are investing in people and workers? So that term, just transition, has to always be part of the conversation. And you're absolutely right. Now, I don't know about, you know, the airplane industry, but there are some industries that are tremendously polluting. Um, I also wanted to, Pete, mention on your point about technology, I think you're spot on. You know, technology is is hugely, there's so much potential. And I think Secretary Kerry spoke about Iceland and some of the technologies they have on carbon capture. But there is also the risk of thinking that technology is a silver bullet, that we don't need to do anything because technology will save us, that scientists will save us. No, we actually have to do a lot more than just rely on scientists. Totally agreed with that one. Exactly. It's, it's encouraging to, to see such things as improvements in lighting and heating and so on. But yes, that's a parcel solution. And then there are also false gods. Uh, we're all being sold bags for, re, you know, cloth bags for going to the grocery store, et cetera. And recently someone published the notion that the cost of manufacturing the bag, the heat, the materials, the, the process of actually creating a reusable bag, the bag has to be used 1,000 times to get to break even. Nobody's going to get that bag to 1,000 times, which gets us back to paper. On the, um, on the workforce piece, I would say a couple things. Number one, think back to 2016 when uh, Hillary Clinton was running for president, and she did suggest that the coal industry uh, was in trouble. And uh, she was pounded for that, absolutely pounded for that. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, it's the truth. The coal industry uh, is, you know, it's no longer uh, a viable source of energy, and we have to look beyond that. So, uh, for example, with the offshore wind work that we're doing, uh, one of the things that we're focusing on is workforce development and trying to transition people from uh, other energy industries into the offshore wind industry. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were down signing a project labor agreement uh, with Mayflower Wind where they, uh, they are going to uh, use union labor and they're going to supply at least 500 jobs on that offshore wind project uh, that they're starting, you know, in the next couple of months. And we're also trying to uh, retrain workers through our community colleges, through our vocational high schools, uh, through other types of programs to transition them from, you know, what their current occupations are to this new industry, which is incredible. It's robust. And there's a need for all types of workers. We have a comprehensive workforce uh, report that was issued in 2018 and uh, another one that uh, is going to be issued imminently about all of the levels of jobs that we need. We need uh, laborers. Uh, we need uh, lawyers. We need engineers. We need uh, scientists. We need researchers. It's incredible, the spectrum uh, that this whole industry is going to bring, uh, which will take any displaced worker and provide them with a, a new opportunity. So we're paying 
very close attention uh, to that issue. And, and I'm glad you brought it up, Natalia. With respect to displaced workers and so on, I think one of the issues that we have, and looking specifically at coal workers, coal mining, for instance, you want to talk about the health benefits of any given job or climate change and so on. Black lung is not a pleasant experience for any coal worker, and their lifespan is certainly not enviable. So that said, yes, it's unfortunate to see the coal industry. When you say it that way, the coal industry just becomes an inanimate thing. But all of the people involved in it, the workers being displaced, is a very real human issue. But moving from being a coal miner to some other career has to be, from a health standpoint, a net positive. So even beyond the health standpoint, how do you engage in providing the kind of training that would allow people to migrate to a new career? But the other issue also is new business geolocation. How do you encourage new businesses who might need that kind of labor to set up shop in Appalachia or wherever that population might exist so that way they could redeploy those people to better careers, better opportunities, better health in general. Um, and so identifying businesses like that, that could pay them sufficiently or equivalently to what they were doing in the mines is a real challenge. But I think that would be worthy of some serious discussion. One question that came up, the last one, in fact, for John Kerry at the symposium was, with respect to traveling the world, there's this notion that all of this in-person travel itself generates a certain degree of greenhouse gases. And what about the impact of that and the possibility of uh, conducting all of those uh, meetings remotely rather than traveling? Uh, for me personally, I think that the value of FaceTime among dignitaries dealing with an extremely important issue is something that is too important to try to do remotely at a distance, but you know, that's just me. And so I'll let John Kerry speak for himself. Well, on the travel part, look, uh, I don't minimize any percentage of what contributes to, to the climate problem. The airlines writ large, all the airlines in the world are the equivalent of about 3% of all of our all of our greenhouse gas emissions, and that's improving because the airlines are now moving. Some, a lot of them are beginning to adopt sustainable fuel, um, and 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 that will change. But I, I just have to tell you, um, I've had multiple, unbelievable number of virtual meetings over the course of last year. I've had 15 meetings with the Chinese that are virtual. I've had two meetings in person. And the reason, I just have to say that at certain times in a negotiation, you can only achieve what you need to achieve personally. It will not happen in a virtual meeting. It's too easy to escape in a virtual meeting. It's too easy to have a technical you know, problem at a critical moment. It's too easy to just you know, say no. Uh, and there's a dynamic that develops in these, particularly multilateral uh, discussions where you need to be able to get into a room and, you know, I hate to say it, shut the door, but with masks and with vaccination. I mean, I've been traveling the world and I knock on wood. I'm very, very careful uh, and, and wear my mask and, you know, but I have been able to achieve 
gains in this process that could only come about in a face-to-face, prolonged discussion with the ups and downs, with the ability of those people to go out of the room, call their leader in their country, talk to the leader, or for me to arrange a meeting with that leader, and then come back having settled an issue that you just could not settle possibly if you had to set up a future phone call or a future Zoom and try to do it virtually. So we're judicious. Uh, we've, we've, we've had, I mean, most of my team is still virtually dealing, but, but some of us have had to travel to get the job done. I'm not sure, Pete, how to deal with the workforce, the location. You're right. You know, it may not make sense that clearly Massachusetts, it makes sense for Massachusetts to invest in offshore wind, but you know, that industry cannot go anywhere. It has to be where it makes sense. So some, you know, clean energy industries will have to be you know, picked because of, you know, the geography, the land, the water, the sun is is directing it. So I don't think there's a possibility to do a one-for-one that you were working in energy, in dirty energy, and now you'll be working in clean energy. But there might be other investments or there might be other, you know, early retirement benefits. There might be other ways to address the livelihood loss uh, because the benefit to our world and to our country, to our, you know, state in Massachusetts is worthwhile. Jeff, how are you thinking about this kind of workers outside, you know, so Massachusetts will benefit from coal not being used outside of the country. You know, climate is is something that doesn't have boundaries. So we all benefit from the U.S. as a whole going greener. So how do we trade off? I mean, we're lucky that Massachusetts has uh, wind, for example. Well, I would would say um, the entire East Coast of the United States is going to benefit from this industry. There are lease areas for offshore wind uh, from Maine all the way down to Florida. So, you know, each of those coastal states have an opportunity to participate in this new industry. Um, you know, there if you drive through the Midwest, um, and I actually drove from Iowa to Texas, and uh, that was in 2016, and I was amazed with the number of uh, windmills that I saw that uh, were scattered throughout farmland in the Midwest. So there's an industry there. I mean, these these devices have to be maintained. There are solar farms throughout the United States. The geothermal technology that they're talking about would require retrofitting neighborhoods across the United States to put in, uh, you know, these Geothermal, geothermal equipment in the ground uh, to replace uh, pipelines. Uh, so, you know, no matter how you do it, uh, and even bringing hydro from Quebec to Massachusetts is going to create jobs in New Hampshire, Maine, and Massachusetts as they construct that pipeline coming down, uh, and then the maintenance that comes along with it. So, there are a lot of new industries that are out there that uh, that will provide opportunities and chances for uh, these folks who have been in the older industries to, uh, you know, develop uh, a new industry. And, you know, I'm actually encouraged uh, by what I see uh, in this area. I think also, too, uh, as a sort of a sidebar to the production of green energy, we slowly get better and better at producing that energy where it is needed. As you reduce the distance between the generator and the user of the energy, uh, you increase the overall efficiency of it. 
the national grid system itself has a certain amount of inefficiency to it. Uh, and of course, generating electricity in very, very sunny climes like the Southwest, where you don't have a big population, uh, unfortunately, uh, it takes a bit of work to ship all that energy elsewhere. But that said, solar energy applied even in temperate climes is sufficiently uh, efficient uh, to be worth doing at the local level, at the regional level, so that way the energy doesn't have to travel very far to be used. I was just going to throw in there is a, there's a whole uh, hydrogen component that I did not talk about where they're building these uh, smaller power plants that uh, will power uh, individual uh, facilities. And that's a, another industry that's out there. But uh, I think we've covered it. Going on from there, look forward to uh, having a further conversation. I, for one, would like to see that as we travel this notion of dealing with global warming, that as a consequence of addressing global warming as an existential crisis, I think that the sidebar, the collateral benefit will be a healthier society overall. And I think that getting to that point is something that should definitely be a significant portion of future, present and future infrastructure bills, because it is part of an infrastructure that we need and an infrastructure that comes in the future. We all need to be prepared for the notion of planting a tree whose shade we will never enjoy. I agree, Pete. And, you know, taking it back to health and, you know, climate, and we, we started the conversation around um, the emergency, you know, we know what COVID cost us and is continuing to cost us. Preparedness, had we invested more in public health infrastructure and preparedness, that analogy that we should take action today because actually with climate change, it's even more dramatic. There are feedback loops. So if we delay a few years, it will become double as hard. If we delay 10 years, triple as hard. So we actually need to be taking action today. We should have taken action 20 years ago, as, as Jeff said. But that urgency, really, the cost of inaction is huge. And it's huge for us. It's huge for our children. It's huge for um, poor countries across the world. And I am excited that there are so many people <clears throat> now saying that it is time to do better. With that, thank you all once again. It's been a scintillating discussion, as always, and we've covered a ton of ground. So uh, with that, and along with uh, Secretary of State Kerry's comments, which are included throughout the program, I hope everyone has learned a little bit, uh, gotten maybe uh, one hour smarter in the process of joining us. And if you have thoughts that you would like to share with us, you can send them to info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. We would all love to hear your comments with us, even or again us, and we would love to share them with the audience. So thank you for listening. I'm Peter J. For Dr. Natalia, for Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, for Representative Jeff Roy, and our guest, Ray Liu, thank you so much for being with us. This is Franklin Public Radio.